Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. In 1962, uh, Sam Walton founded what is today the largest company in the world, Walmart. And he began Walmart with a singular vision, uh, to create a store that was a champion of the common person. Walton grew up in the Depression, so he understood the concept of hard-earned money. So he wanted to start a company that would serve people like him. He built stores in rural communities because that meant people would not have to drive long distances to get what they needed. He perfected the big box model store so that people would not have to travel from store to store in order to get all they needed, which would have saved time, gas, and money crucial for blue-collar workers. He cared about creating a company that people would want to work for, that served both the customer and the people who worked for him. So everything that Walton did and said was a celebration of average people. He never took a salary more than $500,000, despite having a company worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He drove a pickup truck all his life and got his hair cut at the same place all his life. Uh, But as author Simon Sinek tells the story, when Walton died, that all began to change. So in 2011, Sinek attended Walmart's shareholder meeting, and at that meeting, Walmart paid millions of dollars to have A-list celebrities MC and perform at the events, a rejection of Walton's vision for the common person. The meeting was filled with boasting of how much profit Walmart had made, how good they had been at cutting costs, not championing their employees or their customers. As Cynic described the event, if Sam Walton were alive, he'd scoff at the idea of wasting money to parade in rich, famous people to talk about Walmart when there are literally millions of average working men and women who shop at Walmart and work at Walmart who deserve far more celebrating. As a cynic in his book, Start With Why, says Walmart lost the reason why they existed, which is why they're embroiled embroiled in lawsuits for mistreatment of employees and a variety of other critiques they've received in the years, uh, the past few years. And his point is, if if Sam Walton had walked into that shareholder meeting, he would not have recognized the company he had founded. And reading about that, made me wonder, would Jesus have the same experience? Would he walk into our churches, into our worship services, into our homes, and say, I don't don't recognize this? If Jesus walked into our church, would he recognize what he saw as his? The community he founded And we don't have to guess uh, about that. We actually, we can just go right to Jesus' founding vision for his community, which we just listened to from people across all of our campuses. 
Um, And that's the sermon itself, which will be in for several weeks. But before we get to the sermon, I actually want to move back a few verses to even understand who Jesus is preaching to. So if you have a Bible, you can go to Luke 6, and I'm going to read uh, Luke 6, 12 and 13, which happens before Jesus starts preaching. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. And then Luke names those twelve apostles. There's really one word in that those verses I want to highlight that defines the whole sermon and is going to be what my next few minutes are about. It's a word to underline, to highlight, however you like marking up your Bible. When day came, he called his disciples. Disciples. This is the group Jesus preaches that sermon we listened to a minute ago. Twelve uh, disciples he'll name as apostles, which will be his authorized representative. But there's a larger group of people here, men and women, who, who Jesus names as his disciples. So what did Jesus desire to found? What's his community? Jesus desires a community of disciples, not Christians. Uh, Do I have your attention? Uh, The word Christian uh, only appears three times in the New Testament, and it's used uh, to mean little Christ, which was to mock disciples of Jesus. Uh, But today, I feel like the term Christian means something a little bit different from the term used to describe disciples of Jesus. Today, I feel like the term Christian means anyone who ascribes to a few beliefs about the Bible or Jesus, but certainly not all of them, and their lives are not noticeably different than a non-Christian because the teachings of Jesus do not factor significantly in their life. And so in 2022, uh, an article in the Gospel Coalition uh, A study found the the following. First, uh, 46% of Christians disagree that you have an obligation to join a local church. One in two Christians do not believe the local church factors into your faith life, which makes it impossible to actually obey Jesus' teachings, who Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And yet one out of two Christians say, that's not relevant to my life. 55% of Christians believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being, which means the teachings of Star Wars have factored more prominently than the teachings of Jesus. Or 44% of Christians say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he is not God, which again cannot be squared with Jesus' actual words. So what's my, my point? Well, I believe the church has worked really hard to create Christians, but not disciples. We ask people to pray a prayer, to ask forgiveness, to have Jesus come into their heart, to believe that he died for their sins, and then they can spend eternity with him in heaven. 
And I agree with all of the things I just spoke, but it is important to note Jesus never said any of those things to people he wanted to join him as disciples. He said something else repeatedly and continually. We see it every time Jesus invites someone to become a disciple of his. It's in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus approaches Peter, James, and John and says to them, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Which always confused me because that sounds really creepy. We're going to go catch some men. I think that's how you get arrested. Don't do that. Uh, But in that culture, in that day, this was a common saying rabbis would use when they were inviting people to come be their disciples. A teacher would say to you, come be my disciple and we'll catch men so they'll be our disciples as well. And Peter, James, and John understood what Jesus meant. And so this happens in the next verse. When they had brought their boats to land... They left everything and followed him. Do you see what a disciple is? Or one more passage, Luke 5, 27. Again, just a few verses before that sermon Jesus preached. Jesus comes across a tax collector. And what does he say to him? What is Jesus' invitation for him to to change his life? Follow me. Be my disciple. Jesus' primary message was not to go around saying to the world, if you believe in me, I will die for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. His message was, follow me. Become my disciple. Uh, So what is that? Uh, What is a disciple? It's a religious word. Uh, Well, a disciple is an apprentice. And that may not help you. You may say, well, what's an apprentice? Well, uh, think of of it this. Uh, I am not capable of building anything. I cannot build anything. So if I wanted to build uh, some cabinets, if I just went and built cabinets on my own, they would be very bad. Uh, The doors wouldn't shut properly. They wouldn't be rectangular. They probably wouldn't even be a shape. Uh, They would not be capable of holding anything, let alone dishes, and they would be awful to look at. I can't build cabinets, but I know someone in our church who can. His name is Joe Drew, and uh, he's a cabinet maker and a Finnish carpenter. Not just a carpenter, a Finnish carpenter, which sounds impressive to me, at least. So if I want to build a cabinet, what I do is I reach out to Joe. Hey, Joe, help me do what I cannot do. So I go to his workshop, and he shows me his tools. Uh, Probably gives me stern warnings about not touching his tools. Uh, But he shows me, and I watch him. And eventually, he'll probably let me try a task at building the cabinet, which I will immediately fail at. And then he'll have to correct my work. Then he'll let me try it again, and again, and again. And maybe by the hundredth time, I'll do it right. Then he'll move me on to the next task what it looks like. And I'll try again and again and again. And for, for some people with, with Joe Drew, maybe after a few months, you could build a cabinet. For me, after a few decades, I could build a cabinet. Why? Because I'm his apprentice. I'm learning to do what he did. I'm his disciple. So when Jesus says to people, follow me, become my disciple, what he's saying is, is this. 
You don't know the best way to be a human being. It's why the relationships in your life have so much conflict. You say the wrong thing. You don't know how to love other people well. That's okay. Come be my apprentice, and I will teach you how to be a human being, how to love. You lack joy in your life. Come to me. I have deep reservoirs of joy that sustain me through incredible suffering and isolation. Let me teach you how to be a person of joy. You're angry. Come to me and let me teach you how to channel your anger into acts of selfless service and deep commitment to the very people you are angry at. And by becoming an apprentice of Jesus, we learn how to be a human being. Just like if I spent a really long time with Joe Drew, one day I could be a carpenter. And that's what Jesus is inviting people into. Not just to get to heaven when we die, but how to become a human being again. And this invitation of Jesus then invites us to ask or to consider a question, which is, well, what kind of person am I becoming? Who have I apprenticed myself to in order to become that type of of person? Whose disciple am I? Who taught you to be the brother that you are? Who taught you to be the sister that you are? Who taught you how to think about money the way that you think about money? Who taught you how to think about politics the way you think about politics? Who taught you how to do your work to to be in the vocation you are in? Who taught you what kind of student you should be at school when you go back to school after fall break this week? See, we all get attracted to voices we believe show us how to be a good human being. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at in the, in the, in the sermon. The being disciple of Jesus means lots of things, but I want to focus on one thing this morning. One word in the sermon Jesus names. It's the, sermon he star- the word he starts his sermon with in verse 20. Blessed. The Greek word is uh, makarios, Blessed. And this is a really important word, and and name something that's important about disciples and their teacher, because a a disciple believes their teacher knows the good life. That that word blessed or or makarios, um, when Jesus spoke that word, everyone listening to him would know instantly what he was doing, because this, this word was really important in both Greek and Hebrew culture. So if you turn to the Old Testament, you'll find that all the time. Blessed are these types of people. Makarios, or the Hebrew word, is, is asrei. The happy people are these types of people. It's how the Psalms begin. Psalm 1 begins like this. Blessed is the man or the woman, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What that's saying is if you want to have a good life, dwell in the scriptures and resist sinful voices. If you want to be happy, the voice of God must direct your steps more so than the voices of people who want to lead you down the wrong path. That's the good life. Dwelling in the scriptures, not listening to other 
voices. So Jesus is drawing on that tradition here in Luke 6. But he's also drawing on Greek culture because Greek philosophers also use this phrase, blessed are. They would say, blessed are these types of people to talk about how to be happy. Who has the good life? Uh, And so theologian Scott McKnight concludes of Jesus' use of Makarios here by, by writing, the entire history of the philosophy of the good life and the later modern theory of happiness is at work when one says, blessed are. So Jesus is saying, I know how you can be happy. And and this is what it looks like. But this is where things get interesting because if if you listen to what people read earlier, that is how no one talks about how to have a happy life in our own modern day, how to be human. But here's what we're going to reflect on together in the coming weeks. The people you think have a good life, the rich, the well-fed, the people with good reputations, that's not the good life. The good life, the happy life, is loving your enemies. Noted, no amen after that statement. (laughs) The happy life is not living in a judgmental spirit and looking down on other people. Jesus is saying, I know how to be human and what brings true happiness into human beings' lives. And my question to you is, do you believe that? Or to put it in a way Dallas Willard put it, There is no problem in human life that the apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. All the problems that exist in your life today, relational problems, your workplace and vocational problems, your spiritual problems, your emotional problems, your financial problems, all of them are solved by apprenticing yourself to Jesus. By building your life around his teachings and his way, by patterning, patterning your life after his life, do you believe that? That there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve? I'm sure, uh, like you, uh, for me, COVID-19, that, that whole period was just incredibly enlightening in a variety of, of ways. And one of the things that really surprised me was, was watching Christians' response to the pandemic to, be, to descend deep down into the YouTube black hole. And they tried to bring me with them. Read this article. Listen to this podcast. Watch this video. It's important. And I could tell you, as a pastor who knew a lot of people, throughout that whole season of life, through which I spent way too much time on social media, I received a lot of input about who I needed to listen to. And I can tell you, in two years, not a single person invited me to consider the teachings of Jesus in all of the emails, conversations, and texts I received. No one said, go back to this teaching of Jesus. It's, go to YouTube. And I'm like, hard pass on that. And what happened ultimately is we we found other voices to apprentice apprentice ourselves to for the real things of life. Yes, Jesus gets me to heaven. That's how I get forgiven of sins. But I have to find other sources to deal with the real world. And so to, to return back to a question I began with, if Jesus walked in here, 
Would he recognize us as his community? A community of disciples who believe Jesus alone knows the way to truly be a human being and be happy. Are our lives built on his teaching and his vision and his way? In, uh, in North Africa, around 250 A.D., there was a, a guy named Cyprian who became bishop in the city of Carthage. And if you think times are bad now, this was what was going on then. Um, persecution of, of Christians was ramping up so much, Cyprian had to flee um, at one point. So Roman authorities are, are killing Christians at this point. A pandemic had just swept through North, North Africa, which killed innumerable people. And this is before medical um, helps to even understand where disease is coming from. So it's just all kinds of people dying around you. So everyone feels vulnerable to disease and death. The world seems out of control. If you're a Christian, you could get persecuted. So Cyprian sat down in in 256 AD to write to the church to say, this is, I think, the path forward. And what he wrote was not some like grand evangelism strategy for the church to explode in growth in the next hundred years. If we just lean into these principles, we'll explode in growth. No, that's not what he, he did. Um, what he did tell them, uh, though, did lead to a rate of growth in the church that's never been experienced since. And the church exploded through persecution through violence done against them, exploded in growth. Why? And this is what Cyprian wrote to his fellow Christians. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practices rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but live them. I love that last line. We do not speak great things, but live them. And what he meant was, uh, we live the teachings of Jesus. That's who we are. And Alan Kreider, in his book detailing this time in church history, explained what Cyprian meant, what the church was doing then. Because there was no evangelism strategy in the early church. None of the early church fathers wrote about evangelism or how you reach the lost. There were no pastors of evangelism. There were no outreach events. And yet, the church exploded in growth. How? Well, the early church believed, uh, according to Crider, that if you became an apprentice to Jesus, you built your life on his teachings, your life would be so powerfully different than your neighbor's they would come to faith through your alternative lifestyle. The church then focused on becoming apprentices of Jesus, living the teachings of Jesus. So the most quoted verse among the church fathers is not John 3.16, it's love your enemies. They embody the teaching of Jesus when, when it was a very real reality that their enemies would do them harm. And so this is how Alan Crider described this time in history. He wrote, The churches grew in many places, taking varied forms. They proliferated because the faith that these fishers and hunters, just ordinary people, ordinary Christians, the faith they embodied was attractive to people who were dissatisfied with their old cultural and religious habits, who felt pushed to explore new possibilities, and who then encountered Christians who embodied a new manner of life. 
that pulled them toward what Christians called rebirth into a new life. The early church's belief was if we just apprentice ourselves to the teachings of Jesus, his founding vision for our community, that will create such a compelling reality, the world will come to know who Jesus is. Because we don't speak great things, we live them. And my belief is we live in a time today when people uh, in the world in which we live are tired of what Crider calls cultural habits. People are tired of division and hating political opponents. We're tired of the way we speak to one another. A culture that's not flourishing in terms of joy or happiness. For the first time, our, our life expectancy in our culture is going down because of, of what's called deaths of despair. Our world feels chaotic, war breaking out. And so I think Cyprian's words in his days should be the words in our day. Let's apprentice ourselves to Jesus. Learn to be human like he is human, and then let him create in us a powerful alternative lifestyle. And so let me try to, to conclude by just putting that on the ground for a moment. So I'm assuming many, most of you have neighbors. Just imagine for a moment your neighbors. They know you go to church, or hopefully they know you go to church. And a need arises in your neighborhood. And you have the margin to meet that financial need by yourself because you live the teachings of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than receive. The blessed life is not a life of wealth. So you have margin. And your neighbor watches as you give generously to a need that arises. And it's radically different than anything they've ever seen in their life. Or a divorce happens in your, your neighborhood. And everyone's talking about it. But not you. You refuse to enter into the space of gossip or those conversations. And instead, you quietly provide meals for the family going through the divorce. You watch their kids when they need it. Your home becomes a safe place for either spouse to grieve and to receive love and mercy from you in their time of need. Or there's that neighbor nobody likes, the enemy of the block. The music's always too loud. They have way too many cars out in front. No one talks to them. Everyone talks about them, but no one talks to them. But you start to talk to them. Try to find little ways to love them and encourage them. And suddenly they start to trust you and your neighbors see you give the enemies of the block a big hug. And everyone wonders, what is wrong with you? Or more likely, they, they begin to ask, why, why can you love in ways I can't? Why can you be generous in ways that I can't? Why do you seem to have the good life and I don't? That is how the early church grew. I'm a Christian because I've experienced people like that who live such different lives to the modern American uh, narrative of what a good life is that I thought that's so much more beautiful than make a bunch of money, go to college, and die with a lot of toys. I saw people adopting and bringing into their homes orphans at incredibly young ages, people with such radical generosity that I was challenged to my bones, people who gave up their lives to go in, in corners of the world that required enormous sacrifice. And it was just so compelling. 
And the thing is, you don't, you don't become like that by trying really hard. Just like if you came to me to ask you to build a cabinet for you, I wouldn't try to do it really hard. I would call Joe Drew immediately. Actually, I'd probably just tell you to call him. It's like, why are you even talking to me? But my point, apprentice yourself to Jesus, you become that kind of person. So maybe you're hearing all this and like, Tim, this sounds great. I can never become that kind of person. I don't have time. I'm worn out. And I'll say two things. One is you're already apprenticed to someone, and you're spending probably a lot of time devoted to that teacher. So fire him. Uh, but second, that's the beauty of, the apprentice, of apprenticeship to Jesus. The whole point of becoming an apprentice of Jesus is saying, I have no no chance to become the person like Jesus, like we read in the Gospels. Just like I will never build a cabinet without decades with Joe Drew. And you will never become the kind of human you were meant to become without a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus. That's the whole point of why Jesus entered our world, not just to forgive your sins and get you into heaven one day, although he did that too. Jesus did not just come to die for us. He also came to show us how to live, how to actually be a human being. And he entered into this world to say, follow me, come and be my apprentice, learn how to live life from me, which is incredible when you think about it. The son of God, limitless power in the universe, enters our world to show us how to live. And then the question becomes, well, who's in this class? Well, look at verse 17. Again, kind of pre-sermon verses. And Jesus came down with them, stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him, be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Who are Jesus' students? The sick, the troubled, and the demon-possessed. Like, I remember lining up outside elementary school at the end of each summer to be like, are my friends in my class? Like, who's in my class? Is this going to be a friend year? Imagine lining up. Who's in my class? It's the demon-possessed, the troubled, and the sick. It's like, I'm going to be, I'm, mom, can you homeschool me this year? Like, that's going to be the response to that. But what a class. The Lord of the universe Opens his class to session, and who does he invite? Literally anyone. Which means you and all your brokenness are invited. He can change you. He can set you free. His master class is now in session. I hope you'll take a seat and join the class. Let me pray for us. Father, I know in my own life, I'm sorting through. Who who am I apprenticing myself to? Whose voices? have become loud, and and I just, I'm in a place of gratitude that Jesus entered into our world, gave us teaching, gave us a sermon we got to listen to early, earlier. Uh, May we apprentice ourselves to that voice. I pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net. 